And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, March 8th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Robert O'Shaughnessy. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, the government's financial statements are out there not pretty... Plus, a Navy financial maven takes over an office that looks around the world. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, put your own oxygen mask on before assisting that child next to you. It's what flight attendants tell you before a plane takes off. It's also what the Government Accountability Office is, in effect, telling the Office of Personnel Management. OPM has a number of internal skill gaps of its own that could hinder its ability to help other agencies with their skills gaps. Here with more of what GAO said, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And what are the skills gaps that OPM needs to address, like how to address skills gap? Is that a skills gap? The report talks about a couple of different skills gaps that OPM does need to look at. They're a bit broad, but they focus on project management, leadership development, and data analytics, for example. GAO says that addressing some of these internal issues will help OPM try to fully address government-wide skills gaps as well. Generally, skills gaps are either gaps in staffing, so maybe you don't have the employees needed to fill that niche, or it'll be a competency gap. So maybe you have the employees, but you need to give them the right training. GAO said that OPM has done some of the work to train and hire staff, but they haven't created what is called an action plan to manage those efforts. That's really important, according to GAO, because when you look at the broader landscape of current skills gaps in the government, there are several. So there's HR specialists, acquisition and cybersecurity are some of the broader skills gaps that a lot of agencies are facing. GAO said that there's not a clear way that OPM is trying to identify and address these internal skills gaps first. Sure. They're like the shoemaker's children, only the shoemaker isn't very good. So not much it can pass on to the children. And what are some of the challenges that make it so hard for OPM to close these gaps? This has been something that GAO has been looking into for quite a while, strategic human capital management, as they call it. It's been on GAO's high risk list since 2001. So that's over 20 years now. There are issues with OPM, for example, with staffing shortages and some issues just trying to address those skills gaps. And GAO said that back a couple of years ago with the proposed merger between GSA, the General Services Administration, and OPM, that may have worsened OPM's ability to confront some of these skills gaps. Even though that didn't ultimately happen, there are some lingering effects at OPM, for example, staff turnover. But GAO also said that the Office of Personnel Management has made progress for human capital management, which sounds a little bit ironic. So what are the positives here? GAO said that the president's management agenda under the Biden administration focuses a lot on workforce improvements, so strengthening and empowering the federal workforce. That's the top priority of the PMA. The GAO report also talked about the Chico Council, the Chief Human Capital Officers Council, and how they're trying to implement better collaboration between different agency Chicos. They held a public meeting a couple months ago, for example, that discussed or highlighted some of the reforms or pilots that are going on across government. OPM has also issued skills-based hiring guidance. 
they've created a remote jobs filter on USA Jobs. So there's all these piecemeal or small changes that OPM has, in GAO's words, made progress in the past couple of years. But of course, there's still more needed. Well, that's what GAO always says. There's more needed. And what are some of the things that OPM has to do now? What's their medicine they've got to swallow here? The top recommendation from GAO was to create an action plan. What that actually means is looking at where are the skills gaps, identifying what they are, and then making a clear plan for how to correct or address them, create a way to monitor the symptoms over time to see how things improve. And beyond creating this action plan, it'll be equally important to look at the actual execution of it. That's according to Ron Sanders, who is a former chairman of the Federal Salary Council and former associate director for HR policy at OPM. That doesn't happen overnight, but it starts with a policy. It starts with a a pronouncement that says this is what we're going to do. So much of this depends on leadership, policy and execution. You know, you can make your pronouncements tomorrow and then execution may take some time. That's the action plan. It needs both. It doesn't just need, oh, we'll close these gaps by posting vacancies and hoping for the best. We used to call that post and pray. Yeah, that sounds like Ms. Ahuja. Get it in gear here already. The report also says something about what Chico's themselves think that OPM could do better. What are they saying? Agency Chico's said recruitment and workforce planning were the two biggest pain points that they need to focus on when trying to address skills gaps that are more government-wide or specific to other agencies that aren't OPM. They also said that there's challenges like competition with the private sector, that's one that we hear a lot, budget uncertainty and differences in compensation that makes it more difficult to close the skills gaps. So in response, they are saying that OPM needs to offer more workplace flexibilities and try to streamline or clarify some of the guidance that they put out to try to reduce what they say is administrative burdens on staff. But there are a lot of changes that can help. Special salary rates can help, such as through cybersecurity. And many people, even Kieran Huja herself, have said that they won't hold their breath for government-wide civil service workforce reforms. It's going to be something that kind of happens in smaller chunks. Unless you want to turn blue. Exactly. (laughs) And uh, Sanders explained a little bit more why as well. I think so much of this comes down to leadership. In my view, we passed an inflection point more than a decade or so ago with the bulk of civil service reforms taking place at at an agency level. They're agency-specific, agency-centric. They're not sweeping government-wide reforms, and, and yet OPM is still geared for the latter. The need is still there. Nobody is holding their breath for government-wide reform, but uh, agency-specific reforms are there for the asking. Not an easy ask, but still uh, much more doable than something government-wide. And therefore, what's next for OPM in Sanders and everyone else's view? OPM generally agreed with what GAO recommended to change to try to address some of these skills gaps. But their Chico, Carmen Garcia, said there are other efforts underway already, such as using shared certificates and adding more remote work eligible positions within OPM. But they said that coming up, they're planning to conduct what they call a human capital review this spring and then developing and implementing an action plan based on that. All right. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, a Navy financial maven takes over an office that looks around the world. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Navy's International Programs Office is one of its lesser-known components. It helps build maritime security and development partnerships. Recently, NIPO got a new executive director, and Carla Horn joins me now. Ms. Horn, good to have you with us. Great. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me. And let's start with the Navy International Programs Office itself. It's not a very descriptive title. What exactly does NIPO do? So International Programs uh, includes a lot of different activities including our international security assistance programs, where we're working individually with countries to provide them assistance, cooperative development programs, where we cooperate with another country, and then technology security policy, where we review the release of our technology in the U.S. to other partners. So all three of those are kind of big moving parts, and the organization is led by Admiral Tony Rossi and myself. So a lot of moving parts there. Wow. And I guess a lot of this is predicated on the fact that, you know, let's face it, the U.S. Navy is probably the most capable pretty much on, on Earth, right? Well, we like to think so, yes, but uh, we can't do it alone, and we need our partners. And having the interoperability with those partners is really important, and, and that's where these, these sales and these cooperative agreements come into play. Right. And, uh, for example, let's talk about Taiwan to the extent that you can. You know, we are changing the posture of the United States. The government is at the moment in Taiwan for various reasons. So that would involve the Navy. What form would that kind of help and cooperation typically take? So the foreign military sales, absolutely, and different security assistance. So we're working with them on equipment that they need and ways that we can support them through our partnerships, and then we'll continue to provide support after. That's one of the beauties of the the sale, where we sell them the equipment, and then we continue on with parts and training and exercises, and it really builds a long-term relationship. So, for example, and I'm just making this up, but would this be the type of thing, suppose a country acquires or builds its own destroyer, a certain class of ship, there's a lot of experience needed and know-how and maintenance issues to operate a destroyer effectively. So the United States, in that case, might give transfer its know-how to a friendly or allied nation, and here's how the best way to maintain and operate a destroyer. Yes, absolutely. And in fact... Some of the equipment that we have sold to multiple countries, there's even like a user group where we can exchange information amongst different countries along with the U.S., but also just back to your destroyer question, whether they built the equipment themselves in their own country, they may come to us later for follow-on training and other types of partnerships. And by the way, is the number of nations that have carriers growing? Not that I know of, but I wouldn't say... I can really comment further on sure. growth of carriers. Yeah, but I guess if you have a carrier, I mean, it takes hundreds of man years, of person years, to just to understand how to maintain and operate a catapult, 
let alone the rest of the yes. carrier. Yes. Well, even here in the U.S., it takes us, you know, 10 plus years to to build a carrier. And especially with the, the most recent class, the, all the modern technologies that we put into that class is uh, just magnificent. So, yeah. yeah, it definitely takes a lot of a lot of time and a lot of effort. And just briefly, how many billets are in NIPO? I imagine it's a combination of uniforms and civilians, as we're seeing this yeah. morning. Yeah, yeah, it's a combination. We have about 240 people total, um, and that includes approximately 40 military. Uh, we have a number of contracting support, and then the rest is all civilians. And our civilians are certified professionals. We have a number of certification programs for security cooperation, acquisition, financial management. We have a lot of expertise here on our staff. We're speaking with Carla Horn. She's the newly appointed executive director of the Navy International Programs Office, NIPO. I guess you've been there just a couple of months now. And you came from NAVSEA, where you were the comptroller. So you're kind of a financial background person. Yes. So the, the beauty of financial management is everybody needs money. So when you work in financial management, you get to learn a little bit about a lot of things. And the same goes here with our international partners. There are all different funding sources that we use to, whether it's a country bringing their own money to the table or us working very closely with the State Department, um, because security cooperation is part of the U.S. foreign policy and run by the State Department. So we work very closely with them on utilization of their funding to support partnerships. And then we have U.S. appropriated dollars that are used to support partners, for example, Ukraine. So there are all different funding sources. So that financial background actually comes in handy. And what are some of the differences you found from being, say, the comptroller of a very large organization like NAVSI and now running a relatively small one like NIPO? In my past experiences between working in small organizations and then even when I went to NAVSI, um, as I told people, if you're a financial person, whether it's a dollar or a million dollars or a billion dollars, you focus on doing the right thing, following the rules, finding solutions. And to me, it, the dollar amount is, is just wherever you sit. So Sure. And getting back to NIPO itself, just tell us where in the hierarchy of the Department of the Navy that it sits. So NIPO is it's a collection of acquisition professionals. So we actually report directly to the Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Research Development and Acquisition, ASNRDA. So we are part of the acquisition community, and we work directly with the acquisition organizations of the Navy. So NAVC, NAVWAR, NAVAIR, um, those are the organizations that are actually implementing the cases with the foreign partners because oftentimes what the foreign partners want to buy are things that we're already buying here in the U.S. So we partner the country with the program office in the Navy that's already buying that. Now, sometimes a partner may come and ask for something that we're not currently buying for ourselves. And so we call that a non-program of record, and we do our best to support the partner. And you know, they, they pay for it. And, and again, we try to create those relationships and provide them what they need. And does that also include maybe transferring expertise to those other nations in the art of procurement itself? Because the United States has a very well-developed procurement system based on certain principles that aren't 
necessarily extant in every country in the world. I wouldn't necessarily say that we are training them to do their own procurements. There are exceptions to that, of course. Like, so, for example, in Afghanistan and Iraq, we tried to train the Afghans and the Iraqis to support themselves, right, to support their military and their police. And we tried to show them how we do it in the U.S., how we plan, how we program our dollars, and how we look for sustainment processes across the years. We, we tried to do that with Afghanistan and Iraq. In terms of a lot of our partners that we have today, we enjoy having that relationship where they buy the item from us, they buy the same you know, type of equipment that we have here in the U.S., and then we work together in exercises and interoperability. And so that's kind of the ideal for us. And when it comes to technologies that cannot be exported, there's a large federal apparatus outside of the Navy that determines export controls and so forth. So there must be an intra-governmental activity that you get involved with also? Yes. So you hit the nail on the head, right? There's there's laws, there's policies, there's various organizations, there are uh, boards. So it's, it is definitely a wide range of, of involvement when determinations are made on releases of technology. And so we have an organization here in our office. We also have experts across the Navy who make recommendations. And like I said, there's often board reviews for these types of release. And, and again, coordinating across the services and with the Defense Security Cooperation Agency. And just to wrap up again with uh, Carla Horn herself, you're a lifetime Navy person or federal senior executive person. Tell us a little bit about yourself. So mostly ni- lifetime Navy. I actually started out as an intern with the Navy when I was in graduate school in Indiana State. And uh, I remember my director of my political science department suggested I go to Washington, D.C. for an internship. And I'm from a small town of 1,200, so I couldn't imagine moving to Washington, D.C. and the whole experience. And uh, once I got here, I never left. I loved it. I worked at the Pentagon for 20 years and um, really enjoyed that experience and spent most of my time with the Navy, but have worked. I worked in the Secretary of Defense's office which is when I worked very closely with the Army on Afghanistan. And I had a great opportunity to work at U.S. Southern Command down in Miami. And that was a really eye-opening international experience for me to be partnering with Central and South American and Caribbean countries on everything from humanitarian assistance to disaster relief to um, drug interdiction. And so lots of interesting projects there that kind of piqued my interest over 20 years ago to end up here at NIPO. So I feel very fortunate. And where the whole town could fit in one hallway of where you've worked. Exactly. Carla Horn is Executive Director of the Navy International Programs Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Appreciate it. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Sail with the Federal Drive. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, another industry makes the case for help like the semiconductor industry already got. But first, the government's financial statements are out and they're not totally pretty. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. The government's latest consolidated financial statements would give a normal CFO hives. 
material control weaknesses, significant uncertainties, serious financial management problems. Those are words from the Government Accountability Office to explain why it can't render an opinion on the whole thing. We get more now from the GAO's chief accountant, Robert Dacey. Mr. Dacey, good to have you back. Good morning, Tom. And as a CPA yourself, I mean, you are the chief accountant for what used to be called the General Accounting Office when it did accounting. This, you know, is kind of repetitious here, but there are some new developments. And I wanted to ask you about a statement in that report on the financial reports mentioning that the $4 trillion so far in COVID relief spending, we don't even know the full effects of those on federal financial statements. Yes, as we reported, approximately $4.5 trillion in net appropriations were provided for COVID relief. And of that, approximately $4 trillion had been spent as of September 30th, 2022. So there are remaining funds available to be spent on COVID funding. Right. So we don't really know what the net will be. And then along come the infrastructure bill and the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. And those are still unfolding as well, right? So that's more uncertainty. Yeah, those are also unfolding and will have some impact on the federal government's financial position over time. All right. And the report did state that 49 percent of FY22 assets and 23 percent of costs relate to entities that received a disclaimer of opinion. That's good CPA talk. What does it mean, really, in terms of the government's total picture here? What it really means is the auditors were unable to gather sufficient evidence to support the amounts in the financial statements. It doesn't mean they're right or wrong. It just means they could not determine. So, yes, almost half of the assets and almost a quarter of the net costs were not receiving clean opinions on their audits. Right. And so it's important, I think, to note here that a great deal of what the government spends is not part of the annual appropriations that Congress never does on time, that $1.5 trillion or so. But the real expenditures are in Social Security and in medical, Medicare, Medicaid. Yeah, if you look at the total net costs of the federal government, about 75% relate to four agencies plus interest. That would be Social Security, the Department of Health and Human Services, Department of Veterans Affairs, and Department of Defense. And rounding that out is about 5% of total cost related to net interest mainly on the debt held by the public. And by the way, what's going on with interest payments on the debt held by the public, which have grown a great deal in recent years, and now the interest rates are up? Right. As part of the financial statements, there are fiscal sustainability statements, which project the future revenues and spending based upon current revenue and spending policies over the next 75 years. And based upon those projections, net interest cost is expected to increase over that time horizon. Right now, it's about 5%. It's estimated that that will become the single largest category of spending by 2036, representing at that point about 21% of total federal spending and would continue to increase thereafter. Yeah, so it'll be almost like some of the states that that have gotten into that position, I guess, a long time before. And you mentioned in the report uncertainties in social insurance. Is that meaning that there's no policy yet to change the trajectory of Social Security? What that means is that with respect to Medicare particularly, there were significant uncertainties about whether or not the projected reductions in Medicare cost growth could be achieved. And as a result of that, we were unable to determine whether the amounts that were reported in the Statement of Social Insurance, which reports basically Social Security and Medicare spending and revenues, we couldn't determine whether it was reliable or not. 
In other words, CMS has programs in place to try to rein in future costs, but it's uncertain whether those will actually rein in those costs to the degree they hope. Well, basically, it comes down to legislation, which essentially establishes the payment rates that Medicare makes for its services. And so it's those that may or may not be adequate over time to sustain the Medicare program. All right. We're speaking with Robert Dacey. He is the chief accountant at the Government Accountability Office. Material weaknesses in internal controls says that it limits the ability to test to compliance with laws and regulations. What is that meaning? What are these material weaknesses, and are they only in the Defense Department? For many years, we've had material weaknesses. In fact, there's been three major impediments since we started doing the audit in 1997, and those relate to serious financial management problems at the Department of Defense, uh, inability to adequately account for intergovernmental transactions between federal agencies, as well as weaknesses in the preparation of the financial statements. So those have been longstanding issues There have been improvement over time, and there's still ways to go to address those three areas. In fiscal year 22, we had a couple of additional things. Uh, Small Business Administration was unable to receive an opinion on its financial statements, primarily due to accounting properly for the COVID funding that was provided to them. In addition, the Department of Education also was unable to have an opinion on its financial statements because of support or inadequate support for certain assumptions that were used in estimating the cost of the student loan relief package that was announced late in 2022. Right. So sometimes lack of policy causes financial uncertainties and sometimes policy causes them, it sounds like. Well, there are internal control issues already existing at both education and SBA. So I think what happened was kind of an expansion of those affecting their ability to get an audit opinion. Both those agencies had clean opinions on their financial statements for years. So this is uh, more of a recent change as opposed to the longstanding issues I spoke about a moment ago. And when you think about the amount of debt that is being added every year, that is the accumulated deficits really is what you call debt. Does any of this ability to account, I mean, what is the practical effect of it with material weaknesses and ability to render an opinion on the whole statement? If the debt keeps piling on, I mean, none of the money is real in some sense. It's all just IOUs. Well, just to back up a minute, I know there are areas that we can't audit, but in looking at the agency audits, 20 of the 24 CFO Act agencies received clean opinions on their financial statements. In addition, GAO audits the uh, schedules of public debt, and we've given clean opinions for years on those, and as well as the revenues from IRS. And so there are good things happening out there, but there are still challenges that need to be addressed. And aside from the DOD, which you acknowledge is making progress in its ability to do sound accounting for its activities, they're not quite there yet. That's the biggest impediment to the entire statement. Well, that's the impediment related to DOD. The other two relate to areas where there's been a lot of improvement. Intergovernmental, I mean, the the amount of intergovernmental differences, that's where one agency doesn't show the same balances that the other partner shows, essentially. Those have come down significantly over the years, but there's still a significant amount that's left. And Treasury continues to work with agencies in reducing the extent of those intergovernmental differences. Again, there's still a significant amount remaining. The other area has to do with the preparation of the financial statements. And there are a number of areas that have been worked on by Treasury. Uh, One of the areas this past year has been that Treasury teamed up with the State Department 
and worked on the first two phases of a multi-phase project to determine whether or not the commitments and contingencies related to those treaties have been adequately supported. Right. So people that are looking to tighten up things might want to partner with Treasury to undertake studies. Yeah, that, that's been an area, like I say, both intergovernmental it's, and all of these areas, you know, outside of the DOD really require a concerted effort by both Treasury, OMB, as well as the agencies. For example, one of the other areas they dealt with was adding some additional accounting coding that can be used to make sure the innings were reported properly in the consolidated financial statements. And so those were developed, but it's going to take the agencies a while to implement and ensure that those are applied appropriately. And your report references the long-term debt-to-GDP ratio, and that's going to exceed World War II levels sometime in the next, what, eight or nine years? Projections that are in the consolidated financial statements, as well as similar projections done by GAO and the Congressional Budget Office, show that as a percentage of GDP will exceed the historic high of 106%, which was right after World War II, by 2031. And what does that mean? I mean, if a company had debts and liabilities much greater than its assets or its income, or those are two different things, I understand, it might be declared bankrupt. Well, yeah, the government's in a slightly different situation, but it's still a serious issue that we've reported for many years, that the government is not on a sustainable fiscal path, that the projected debt to GDP will increase over the horizon of the projections, which means it's unsustainable, essentially. So we've reported since 2017 that Congress should develop a fiscal plan to place the government on a sustainable fiscal path. And subsequently, that that fiscal plan should include appropriate targets for things like debt to GDP, as well as dealing with alternatives to the debt ceiling that we currently have as well. Sure. Now, you are a CPA, and CPAs like their left and the right-hand sides of their balance sheets to balance. If you were the chief accountant of the government itself, what's the first thing you would do tomorrow? Well, that's a good question. But I think what I would do is continue the efforts that are underway now. Again, it's not one party needing to do things. It's, it's a lot of different parties working together to address them. So I think that's the most important aspect uh, with respect to DOD as well as the government wide. There are action plans out there that need to be implemented, but those are probably going to take several years to fully implement. Robert Dacey is chief accountant at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate it. Have a good day. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that report. It's 275 pages, by the way, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, another industry makes the case for help like the semiconductor industry already got. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Semiconductor chips have gotten all of the attention and the $50 billion subsidy from the government. But without the more prosaic printed circuit boards or PCBs underneath them, chips don't do anything. PCB manufacturing has also mostly moved offshore. And now there's a possible bill pending to help that industry, too, as the nation focuses on the supply chain. We get more now from PCB industry spokesman David Schild. Mr. Schild, good to have you in studio. Thanks for having me, Tom. And give us the statistics. I mean, PCBs were started here, and they used to be 
just a piece of cardboard with holes in it, and you'd stick the transistor in and solder the backside. It's a pretty high-tech thing now, printed circuit boards, and how much is still here and how much has gone overseas. Well, you're absolutely right that a printed circuit board is an example of high technology, and it's part of a microelectronics ecosystem that makes really every aspect of modern life possible. From F-35s to F-150s, we've got to have semiconductors, but those semiconductors have got to sit on printed circuit boards to make pretty much all of modern life function for us. And you're right. We've had a significant contraction in the size of American industry. 25 years ago, we had 30% of market share. 30% of PCBs were produced here in America. In real terms, that was 2,200 companies. Today, less than 4% of PCBs are made in America by less than 150 companies. So there's been a very significant contraction and real offshoring of a critical technology. And for the semiconductors to be useful, as you say, they have to be attached to the board. And that all involves very sophisticated wave soldering machinery, pick-and-place, numerically controlled. It's pretty amazing to watch. Does the population of the boards, does that also take place mostly overseas or can boards be shipped back here and we still do the assembly and soldering and all of that here? I think that you're talking about a global ecosystem that's going to remain multi-continent, right, multi-country. What we see is a real imbalance in the supply chain, a real dependency on one region of the world. And as we saw during the pandemic, when we extend supply chains overseas and we have to rely on foreign sourcing, sometimes we can have empty store shelves, we can have empty car dealership parking lots. That's not what we want. I think the imbalance, the contraction of this industry, it's not healthy for the economy. And certainly, as the CHIPS Act makes an investment in American semiconductors, we should be mating those up with American substrates. We should be mating those up with American PCBs right here and not have all this technology going back and forth across the ocean. And the semiconductor industry is very well organized. It's got several national associations that have had a lot of policy impact for many, many years. I used to go to the annual Semiconductor Industry Association dinner and get chicken fried steak there with Jerry Sanders. What about PCBs? Are they less organized? Is that more of a mom-and-pop type of business? Well, two years ago, a number of industry executives realized that we needed an investment by the federal government and we needed a voice in Washington. And thus, the Printed Circuit Board Association of America, or PCBAA, was formed. We've grown to over 27 members today, and certainly uh, we need to get bigger and speak with a louder voice in Washington. But I think that we're really the lead uh, sled dog when it comes to advocating for this part of the micro electronics ecosystem. And of course, we're partnered with organizations like IPC and USPAE on this effort. And I think our friends in the semiconductor space understand that this is a partnership. And uh, as they grow, we need to grow as well. And the nature of the PCB industry that is still in the United States, is it the multi-layer, really complex type of finely manufactured board? Or is it just the uh, well, there's, there's lower levels that you would might put in a toaster as opposed to an F-35. I think you'd find varying levels of complexity. But, of course, products that end up in national defense applications have to be made, made right. here in America. The Defense Department requires it. Our members are proud to do it. And so certainly for a lot of aerospace and defense applications, right here in America, we're making state-of-the-art printed circuit boards. All right. We're speaking with communications consultant David Schild, who is representing the printed circuit board industry, and you're also running their association too, aren't you? That's exactly right. I'm fortunate enough to be the executive director of PCBA and excited for what we've got lying ahead in, in Washington. Well, association heads have special challenges, but this is the world capital for it, so you're in the right place. And 
Why did the circuit board industry leave the United States? I mean, there's an environmental impact that they have, and that can get expensive and complicated. And the labor costs, or what else? I think that if you look at what's happened over the last 25 years, we as a nation have not prioritized American manufacturing and specifically high-tech manufacturing, and other nations have. And foreign subsidies make it very attractive to do business in other nations, uh, to build factories, to hire workers. But there's no reason that can't be done here. As we've seen with the CHIPS Act, where public money goes, private money will follow. That $52 billion that you mentioned that the CHIPS Act brings to the table, it's been matched by $400 billion from private industry. We believe that a similar investment in PCBs, and we're asking for a fraction of that money, 3 to $5 billion for capital expenditures, for workforce development, we believe that will be matched by private investment. And I think the more important part of our initiative is a tax credit, an incentive for the manufacturers to buy American PCBs. Let's make it attractive to buy high technology built here in America. And we think then the whole ecosystem grows and thrives domestically. And there was a bill in the 117th Congress to do that, not reintroduced in the 118th. Who's behind it and what what else do we need to know about that bill? Well, we're proud that we have bipartisan support for what was known as the Supporting American Printed Circuit Boards Act. I'm confident that that's going to be reintroduced soon. And again, we've got champions on both the left and the right, uh, the R's and the D's, because I think It's a nonpartisan issue to say that we want to have more high technology manufactured here in America. And I think that the Congress, on the heels of the success of the CHIPS Act, uh, should take up the rest of the ecosystem uh, and move forward with this bill and others. They've got a lot of priorities. Who are the principal sponsors? Sure. We're very lucky to have Representative Blake Moore from Utah and Representative Anna Eshoo from California as the original co-sponsors of this legislation. And we've met with a lot of folks on the Hill, and we see a lot of interest and a lot of champions for American high-tech manufacturing. And you mentioned that, of course, for military use, a PCB and the rest of it has to be manufactured in this country. So do you get the sense that DOD is invested in this particular issue, or do they feel like they're okay supply chain-wise? Absolutely. The Department of Defense, I think, is one of the original federal agencies that realized that we have challenges around microelectronic sourcing. And for many years, they have been invested in shoring up domestic capacity and making sure that their supply chains, for the things that our men and women depend on to you know, do their jobs and come home safely, that those things are reliable, that they're trusted, and that they're ready when the men and women in uniform need them. So the DOD has been all over this issue. They've got a number of officials who are focused on this. And honestly, they've been great partners with our industry in helping to amplify our message. So right now, the main thrust of the association is to get Congress to reconsider this bill. Absolutely. We think that the president's message from last week, let's finish the job, applies very well to a discussion about microelectronics manufacturing. We've made investment in semiconductors, but chips don't float. We can't go anywhere if we're simply making semiconductors here in America. Uh, Let's finish the job. Let's invest in PCBs and substrates. All right. Communications consultant David Schild represents the printed circuit board industry. Thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your shows. 
The Air Force says it's making progress in securing its weapon systems against cyber threats. The service's Cyber Resiliency Office for Weapon Systems, or CROWS, has been up and flying for five years now. It has cyber experts embedded at several Air Force acquisition offices, and CROWS is getting ready to expand to the Space Force. Joe Bradley is the program's director, and for an update, he spoke with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. It's a continuation and an evolution of the discussions we've had with Space Force. Space Force, if you remember back from the uh, Cyber Resiliency Steering Group days, was an integral part, you know, whether it was, uh, you know, through the Director of Engineering or then the Chief uh, Information Officer. Uh, what we're doing is, as, as we've worked closely with the CIO's office, we've also realized that we need to partner with the Program Executive Officer and the individual program communities. So when we talk about a, uh, a partnership with space, it's now evolving our existing partnership and getting more into the uh, the day-to-day aspects of the programs where we'll be able to uh, to make an even bigger difference. And as I understand it, the way this is kind of operationalized is through what y'all are calling cyber-focused teams, which will now be inserted into Space Force programs. Can you tell us, you know, f- foundationally what those teams actually do on a day-to-day basis in the, in the places where they already exist? Sure. So our cyber-focused teams are experts that are there to work with the program offices, you know, the, the chief engineers, the lead engineers, the program managers, and the prime contractors to ensure that the systems that we're acquiring and, and are fielding on behalf of the warfighter are, uh, are cyber resilient. So it's a, it's a group of unique specialties, and we are actually working with the space community right now to identify what specific series and categories and, and grades that they want. To, uh, to work in their program offices with a template that we've used that's been historically uh, proven to work within the, uh, the non-space portfolios. So we're in the infancy. We basically had our first kickoff meeting with the, the program executive officers uh, in January of this year, and we're, uh, we're starting to work and build that construct out based on our leveraging the work that we've done with the non-space folks. In the programs where the team's already established, how established are they? How long have they been up and running, and, and what have they been able to contribute so far? Sure. I believe three years. It varies. It may be actually be four years, but, but it varies as to um, which program offices. So I don't want to get into specifics of, of what they've, they've done and what they've found, but we've, we've found that they've assisted us in uh, responding to the congressional data calls uh, and NDAA 1637 to build that budget display. We found that they have been very helpful in developing the, the cyber uh, words that would go into acquisition documents, like a statement of work, uh, like a specification, to make sure that we've got those hooks in. I know we're going to talk a little bit about the uh, System Security Engineering Guidebook, but they actually are the, the practitioners that will implement the tenets of that guidebook in the program offices and use that as a way to work with the industrial base, both our traditional and non-traditional defense industrial base partners, to ensure that, that the systems we build uh, when they are networked together uh, will be uh, resilient and, and able to provide the operational uh, needs, to satisfy the operational needs of the warfighter. And kind of the, the, the words that, that everybody's been using for this all along are that you want to bake in cybersecurity, which suggests the main focus is on systems that are in development. But it, are the teams working at all on legacy systems, systems that already exist, looking for ways to harden those? The majority of our programs 
uh, our our fielded programs, right? So uh, we look at opportunities, whether it's in uh, depot, midlife extensions, or just a tech refresh to increase the resilience. Um, a great example of that is uh, some work we did years ago. Uh, Reggie, I'm sure you probably remember the resilient embedded the GPS. Uh, we, we actually provided the initial outlay of research and development funds so that as an aircraft would come in for a midlife upgrade, they can then get that aspect and, and you know, uh, incorporated within their weapon system baseline, and it would then harden that weapon system to a state better than it was before. And, you know, I, I want to stress that because this is going to be an evolution. We are always going to learn uh, as our adversaries create more attack vectors, as they uh, try to look for more exploits. We have to, we can't just say that we're, we've got this great product and we're done and we're, we're, we're through. Reggie is a great example. In fact, uh, the GAO has, uh, has actually uh, recognized that as a, as a great lessons learned, a great uh, way to do this. So we will constantly look for ways to harden the systems further. And I also want to stress that it's not just material solutions that we look for. We look for the entire spectrum, you know, tactics, techniques, procedures, you know, doctrine. There are other ways to make sure that we are hardening our weapon systems and, and protecting our warfighters. Yeah, and a lot of this goes beyond cyber expertise, I would imagine, right? Because I, I know one of the things that y'all have been thinking about and working on for, for years now is getting some of this baking in into contract language. So, so maybe talk about the multidisciplinary aspects of this and, and, and how you apply all these principles to the acquisition process. Sure thing. That's a great question because that's exactly where the focus is on our new systems. We have an opportunity. We have a clean sheet. We have the opportunity to design this, you know, from the from the, the ground up. So we actually are working with the acquisition community, and by that I mean program managers, logisticians, test and evaluation folks, systems engineers, even our finance folks uh, are embedded with us because they have an, a vested interest. Because I can tell you that I can develop this really elaborate solution. But if it's not financially feasible to implement, then I've wasted time and money. So we require the entirety of, of the acquisition workforce to help us to, uh, to build it right from the, from the onset. And we use the acquisition guidebook, the system security acquisition guidebook, uh, as a uh, engineering guidebook, excuse me, as a, uh, a starting point. When we developed the language that's going to go into the acquisition documentation, we reached out through NDIA, the National Defense Industrial Association, uh, so they could uh, contact their partners because we don't want an, an mandate language that is untenable uh, from, our, from our defense industrial base. So we want to make sure that the language that we put out there is language that they can accept and they can achieve. If we build a guidebook that everybody can use instead of just a mandate, they're going to be more apt to want to embrace it and use it. And I found that that, that is exactly what's happened with our, our guidebook. You know, we've, as we've learned more, we've, uh, we've expanded the guidebook. So, um, yeah, that's exactly what we're doing, and, and we want to make sure that it's not just an engineering thing because cyber is not just an engineering thing. It is a, an entire spectrum. I remember back when Crows first stood up in 2017 or so, one of the concerns around that time or one of the things that you knew was going to be challenging was that there, there really wasn't a process yet to – put funding against this problem because it hadn't been a major consideration in the past. It sounds like the, the budget or the Crows itself is mature enough and the process is mature enough that, that big Air Force really is putting money against this problem at this point. Yeah, you're exactly right. And um, you mentioned maturity. Uh, one of the things that, that I like to think is we've evolved our, uh, our processes significantly uh, over time. 
Um, we're making data-driven decisions now in terms of what to invest in. We also create a completely transparent requirements review board where programs and, uh, and even sometimes vendors uh, will come in with unique solutions. And they, they get vetted up through the program office, our program office, our chief engineer, our finance, contracting, on to Colonel Lehman and then on to myself, to see if they're in scope with crows, whether they've got, um, is the juice worth the squeeze, right, when we do an investment? Because uh, as we all know, you know, dollars are limited. I, I tell people that I could spend the entire obligation authority of the Air Force and still not solve all the threats. So what we have to do is we have to uh, we have to look at things with a, a intelligence lens, right? Where are those threats? Where are those vectors? And that's how we we kind of make those data driven decisions, that determine what to invest in, as well as what the you know what's the timeline on these mitigation solutions? Is this something that is needed immediately, or is this something that we do have some time to actually develop a more uh, esoteric and robust solution too. So uh, I, I like to think that uh, our requirements review process that we have in place with a, with a board uh, provides us that uh, transparency that, that I believe is needed, uh, but also um, it enables that, that anybody could come in, whether it's a user, whether it's uh, you know folks that are involved in the, uh, the chief's operational imperatives, uh, you know, they can come in and they have insight into visibility and what our investment strategy is. And uh, is it consistent with the objectives of the Air Force and the Space Force? And then how do we make sure that we continue to, to keep that trust there, that we're, not, we're just not investing in, uh, in science fair projects that have no utility? And I, I, I'm very, you know, I'm very pleased with the way this has worked out. I, I think we've got a lot of strong partnerships. And like I said, uh, transparency is key to me, especially when it comes to uh, financial management. Joe Bradley, the director of the Air Force's Cyber Resiliency Office for Weapons Systems, Crows, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, a Navy financial maven takes over an office that looks around the world. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Tammen.